welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 97. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, before we get into today's episode, we just want to remind you as always that if you do enjoy these podcasts, please feel free to tell your family and friends about them, take a screenshot, post it to your social media stories. Also, if you are listening on the iTunes podcast app, please feel free to leave us a rating and give us a review. That would be much appreciated. And if you are interested in getting in touch with us regarding our coaching services, you can always just Google us at The Bodybuilding Dietitians, or you can search www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com, and that is a link that you can find in the show notes below or any of our Instagram bios. And just as we always say, we don't just coach physique athletes, we coach anyone with a health and fitness related goal. Now, without further ado, Jack, episode 97. Awesome. So we'll get straight into this Q&A. And the first question is a two-parter. So the first part is, does resistance training affect creatinine levels? And does creatine intake affect creatinine levels as well? Damn. So this is a good question, you know, and creatinine and creatine, they both sound very similar. So I totally understand how people could accidentally use them synonymously, right? and kind of confuse them, but they actually are two very different things. So essentially creatinine is a chemical waste product that is produced in response to the normal metabolic processes and reactions that occur within your muscle cells, particularly following resistance training. Now there is also some, you know, literature to suggest that taking creatine, so supplementing with creatine can slightly raise creatinine levels, but it's certainly not to a level that would be dangerous or harmful by any means. But yeah, essentially creatinine, it's a natural waste product that's going to be elevated in your bloodstream after you engage in some exercise, particularly resistance-based exercise. But creatinine, it's normally filtered by the kidneys, right? It's broken down by the kidneys and it's excreted through your urine. But in some clinical conditions, especially when someone is having kidney issues, if they do undergo a blood test and it comes back that they do have elevated creatinine levels, this can actually be an indicator that they are having some kidney problems, right? Because their kidneys aren't sufficiently able to filter that creatinine and excrete it as waste from the human body. However, because creatinine is elevated in response to exercise, this just goes to show that it's really important to actually get your blood tests done in a timely manner, right? And just be strategic in when you schedule to have a routine blood test. And Jack and I definitely are advocates of getting blood work done at least every six months or so, just to make sure that you are fine, you're dandy and you're healthy. But like we've spoken about on previous podcast episodes, doing exercise can lead to some false positives on a blood test just because exercise is a stressor on the body. So generally it's recommended that you have at least a whole day of rest following your previous training session before you go get some blood work done. Otherwise, if you go train legs, man, and then you go get some blood work done straight afterwards, you probably are going to have a lot of false positives and your doctor will probably sit down with you and say like, wow, from these levels, it looks like you have kidney and liver failure, you know? But you're like, I'm I'm 20 years old. I'm I'm really healthy. I always go to the gym, right? So be strategic with it. Hopefully they would know that you're exercising and they should know that exercise increases creatinine levels. Mm -hmm. So 
yeah and make sure you keep your doctor informed as well yeah absolutely that's a really good point but man you'd be surprised right like sometimes you aren't given any advice on you know how to actually prepare for a blood test right and generally what we would recommend so that you don't lead to any false positives is let's say that you usually have your rest day on a Sunday, right? What I would probably recommend doing is probably having your final training session before that rest day on the Saturday morning, and then you can rest for the rest of Saturday, you can rest all of Sunday, and then I would get your blood test done first thing on Monday morning. So that you have, you're giving your body like a good probably day and a half at, at least to really just clear out all those waste products and just rest, recover, normalize, so that you can actually get some accurate and representative blood work of your true health status. Yeah, totally. And I guess to wrap this question up, like if you are conducting resistance training or even other forms of exercise as well, and you do get high creatinine levels, we're not saying that you 100% don't have any issues Mm. to do with your kidneys because we can't help you in that department yeah uh, that's what a doctor is for but we're just saying that the the uh, resistance training can cause a false positive in terms of elevated creatinine levels and it's mm-hmm. something we've both experienced on our blood tests as well yeah but uh, it's always important to clarify that with your doctor before making any assumptions mm-hmm. absolutely so i guess if you were to go right and get a blood test and it came back that you had high creatinine levels then I would probably get a follow-up blood test as well and just make sure that you rest for a few days prior just to double check, right? But then again, if it does come back that you have high creatinine levels, then yeah, you just have to cross that bridge, you know, when you come to it with your doctor and uh, hopefully you're okay and you're safe and healthy. Yeah, again, I as Tierra touched on, I don't think that consuming creatine will have a dramatic impact. Mm-hmm. But again, that's something to discuss with your doctor. Make sure... I won't say too much about the doctor side of things, but sometimes they can be a little bit presumptuous in terms of the evidence around high protein diets Mm -hmm. and creatine supplementation and stuff like that. Some of of them will blanket statements say, never take protein powder, and then some will be a bit more informed and, and realize that protein powder is just a food just like chicken or eggs. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, you should get your medical advice from a doctor. You should get your dietary advice from a dietitian, you know, <laughs> your exercise advice from an exercise scientist or exercise physiologist. You know the drill, right, guys? Like everyone has their specialties and their qualifications in specific areas for specific reasons. You would, this is actually a topic for another day, maybe when we have a, another doctor on, on the podcast, but how much nutrition science or nutrition skill does a doctor actually have? Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it would, it's, uh, it's not very much. Yeah, it's minimal, right? Yeah. Gosh, and it's, so, it's, it's really unfortunate, right? Because food really does have the potential to be medicine in a lot of circumstances, right? And medications and, and your dietary approach and your lifestyle go hand in hand. So like the way it works here at the University of Queensland is you have to do a minimum three-year undergraduate degree. So... I always thought that if someone was going to go into medicine, it would be so strategic and beneficial to actually do like a nutrition exercise science degree, have Mm. that under your belt, and then go on to study medicine for four years, Yeah, right? That'd put you at a huge advantage. mm, It would be, they should make that a prerequisite, I think, Mm. or at least have quite a few nutrition courses. But most people end up doing probably like a general science or biomed or Mm -hmm. something similar. Yeah, of course. Whatever strikes your interest, (laughs) of course. But uh, 
that's not to say that nutrition isn't, you know, remarkably beneficial. And I think that doctors really, really should be educated to quite a degree, I think, in Mm. nutrition science. Hopefully times change in the coming years. Yeah, totally. And even if they have some basic nutrition knowledge, which covers the fundamentals, that would be really Mm -hmm. good. Yeah, things like energy balance, you know, macronutrients, like Mm. the sources of food, for example, you know, a doctor could be telling you like steer clear of protein powder, but they don't even take into account that you might be drinking two liters of milk per day. And that's the exact same form of protein. Yeah, man. (laughs) Oh, boys. (laughs) Anyway, so there's no... There's no evidence uh, or firm evidence to suggest that creatine supplementation is is bad for your health. Yeah. In fact, you know, creatine is the number one most evidence-based supplement on the planet. It's remarkably healthy. You know, creatine, right, we, we get it through supplementation and it's just made from three amino acids, methionine, glycine, and arginine. Your body can produce it by itself, you know, through the kidneys and the liver, but also you can get it from animal containing products too, like things like red meat and chicken and fish, but you would have to eat a lot of those foods. I'm talking about like kilograms of meat every single day to generally meet the same amount of creatine you would just get through supplementation. So supplementation, creatine, you know, we just recommend taking a standard five grams every single day, regardless if you're training that day or not, man, even regardless if you're doing resistance training or not, like creatine is so remarkably beneficial for your health and also your cognitive function. And, you know, there are some arguments to say that, animal eaters right and omnivores they generally do get some levels of creatine from the diet but if you are more of a vegan or a vegetarian and you aren't getting any creatine from the diet then there's even more of a reason to actually supplement with it especially for the cognitive benefits so five grams of creatine every day doesn't even matter when you take it compared to other supplements like there's no timing it's just you just need to take it yeah i've been taking creatine for eight years or something now, I think. So, mm-hmm. and that's every single day. Yeah, I'm still standing. You don't need to cycle it as well. No, Just you thought don't. I'd put that out there. <laughs> no, you don't. All right, so moving on to another question. This one says, how do you know when you need to switch out an exercise for another variation? Cool, so this is a question I get asked quite frequently by clients. And it is one of the, I think, fitness myths or misconceptions that People think you might need to switch an exercise out regularly to shock the muscles. But the reason why that's not true, and if anything, that would be not harmful, but less optimal for your training or muscle growth or even strength, is that especially for the bigger lifts, it takes time to get good at a movement. Just like any other sport, whether it might be like any other skill-based sports like darts, swimming, soccer, team sports, you, you get better, of course, through athletic prowess like If you have maybe bigger leg muscles, you might be able to run faster. But think about all the the skill-based aspects of a sport. Like how do you kick a ball? How do you throw a dart? How do you, I don't know, ride a horse? Whatever it may be. There's it's not just the physical side of things. And the same is true for resistance training as well. Think about your first ever barbell squat versus five years into training like how if your barbell squat is looking the same then either you are exceptional when you first started barbell squatting or you just haven't really improved your skill that much Mm -hmm. and like i've been barbell squatting for probably over six years now and i'm still refining my technique and making changes based on on the lift and how i'm performing and stuff like that and the same goes for bench press and even the accessory based movements like maybe not so much a bicep curl because that's just one lever action but things like a machine machine press, like if you just 
if you if there's a machine press where you need to adjust the seat and you just hop onto the machine and, and keep and just push straight away, mm. you don't take time to maybe adjust the height of the bench or adjust the the um, how far the pressing things come out. Uh, then you're kind of setting yourself up not to have the best experience on that machine. So what I'm getting at here is that there's a huge skill component to lifting, not just things like Olympic lifting and powerlifting, but also bodybuilding as well, because you need to maximize that lift. And part of that will come from getting stronger through having bigger muscles, but a lot of it, probably more of it will come from the skill-based aspect. So if you're switching out the movement all the time, then you're not giving yourself enough time. If I've just said it's taken me six years or longer to keep getting better at squats and you're subbing out of movement every month, then you're just not giving yourself enough time to really reap all the benefits from that movement. Yeah, that's such a fantastic point, you know, and it really is for those big compound movements, those multi-joint movements that, man, you know, the literature says that it generally takes up to like 12 weeks, right, to develop those neural adaptations and actually getting comfortable in a movement before you actually start to see significant hypertrophy improvements. So for example, let's say that you did get on a hack squat, right? It might take you anywhere between like four to 12 weeks to actually become proficient with that movement and actually gain the confidence and gain those neural adaptations to actually really start pushing for strength. That's not to say that you're not going to experience any hypertrophy outcomes during that 12 week period, but it's just after you become very, you know, comfortable with the movement and the movement pattern that you can really probably start putting more weight on the, uh, on the machine. But again, bear in mind that's until you start getting hypertrophy benefits, not until you've mastered the movement. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, 12 weeks, but I, yeah, I would argue, you know, 12 years kind of thing. Like these things take freaking time. And there's just some movements that you just can't necessarily replace that movement pattern, right? Like imagine a hip hinge, right? For a barbell RDL or a barbell hip thrust, you know, or a barbell squat or an over, like an overhead press, right? Like you could do slight variations of those movements. Like you could use some dumbbells rather than a barbell. You might be able to use a machine. You could do something staggered, but for the most part, the movement pattern is pretty damn similar because it's just, it's such an epic movement pattern. But let's talk about that, Jack. So what are some signs that you might need to change an exercise and change it for a different variation? Yeah, so I the reasons I usually give, it's not a exhaustive list, but it's probably three or four of the main reasons. So number one is that you have stored on that lift for quite a consider, considerable amount of time. And number two would be that it's causing you injury or niggles or it's feeling uncomfortable. Number three is that you're just really not enjoying it. And the iffy thing about number three is that you just got to delve into a bit as to why you're not mm-hmm. enjoying it. Because... I would find that with most people, if you're progressing at a lift, then usually you are enjoying it. Mm-hmm. So that might, number three might tie into number one in that you're not progressing with yeah. it, which might be why you're not enjoying it. And if you're not enjoying it because it's too tough, but you are still progressing, uh, then... Just toughen up. <laughs> that's, that's a little bit of a trade-off. I'm not going to... It depends on the individual. Yeah, I know. Like sometimes I've, like when I generally have my very first consult with a client, you know, we're going through their exercise and their injury history and we're trying to, you know, create their new program together. I'm asking them, you know, like which exercises can you perform comfortably? Are there any exercises that you like and that you don't like? 
People always joke about not being able to do Bulgarian split squats when I know that they are fully capable and they know that they're fully capable, but they're just freaking tough. But that's the thing, guys, right? Like, you know, if you if it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't change you. And sometimes you do kind of just have to toughen up. You do have to do the tough stuff because as hard it is as it is and as tough it is, as it is, generally it is those tougher movements that are more likely to induce more hypertrophy and strength and really change your physique in the long run. Yeah, and that you can progress with long-term as well versus mm-hmm. like bicep curl and arm training is probably the things I switch out the most just because I don't progress with them long-term. Mm-hmm. Like if I if I continue to stick to dumbbell alternating bicep curl, I would probably still be... Like there's a certain point where I'm just not going to get beyond 25 kilos without like swinging a crap load. So mm-hmm. I'm switching that out fairly regularly and, and incorporating different movements for that. Yeah. And I would say that I think these things are honestly important to auto-regulate for the most part, right? Like you can keep in the same movement across different mesocycles if you are progressing with it. Like there's no reason for you to do a six or an eight week training block and your squats are going amazing, right? But then you're like, oh, it's at the end of the six or eight weeks. Like let's sub out my barbell squats for some hack squats. Like no, why don't you just keep doing barbell squats? There's no necessary reason why you have to change. Yeah, definitely. I would I would argue keeping something in until you fully rinsed it out. And I guess this provides a talking point as well that some people will plateau early potentially because bringing it back to technique and maximizing the execution of it. For example, like I remember probably in 2016 when... Alan, my uh, my former coach, oh, current coach as well now, was telling me how to bench press properly. And I was still like really flat on my back. I didn't tuck my shoulder blades at all. I wasn't driving from my heels. And like, I remember executing all of those cues and in the same session, I increased by like five to 10 kilos Wow! Uh, back in 2016. So what I'm trying to say is that really ensure that executing something well is one of your top priorities because one it will help with injury prevention and with the progression of that movement as well and there will be some circumstances where it might not be worth your while for example like we know that in powerlifting they do maximize the back arch in a bench press to shorten the range of motion and and provide a stronger lift and for example that's not something that i particularly want to do to that grade of an extent just to give a stronger lift on the bench press because I don't think that's as relevant to hypertrophy. Well, yeah, you're shortening your range of motion there. So you wouldn't experience as much hypertrophy in your pecs. Mm. And the same for me as well with my back squat. I've been told by a few people to, because I go ass to grass, basically, a few people have told me if you shorten your range of motion, it would still technically be a deep enough squat, but you'd be able to squat more. Mm -hmm. And again, that's something that I don't really want to do because I want to maximize my range of motion, especially for that adductor growth in the squat as well. So, yeah, I think that, and that's the thing when it comes to full range of motion, right? Like obviously there's a huge argument for going through a full range of motion with a joint, but at the same time, like a full range of motion is going to be individual to everyone, depending mm. on, you know, obviously their biomechanics, but what feels the most comfortable for them. So these people who are speaking to you, right, they might only just feel comfortable just going to parallel. Otherwise their lower back does start to round. Mm. But if you are fully capable of doing a phenomenal, 
phenomenal squat, like basically an Olympic squat, right? And you get amazing quad growth and adductor growth for that. What do you that. mean by an Olympic squat? Well, they go like ass to grass, right? Power lifters don't have to go ass to grass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. And like, for example, if you try it, when you were doing barbell squatting, mm-hmm. you wouldn't have been able to go ass to grass without your background. Yeah. And-, and that's another reason why you probably need to sub out some movements or I think that it's important to actually give movements a good crack before you just look at something you're like, oh no, I'm pretty tall and I know someone else who's pretty tall with long legs and they had trouble squatting so I'm not even going to try it. Like I would always give something a good solid crack to see if it works for you because there's a lot of ways to work around things, right? You can get some lifting shoes, you can elevate your heel. Like tall people with long femurs, some of them are still phenomenal Mm. squatters but it really just depends on what works best for you. So yeah, I gave barbell back squatting a good solid crack for a few years, but at the end of the day, I'm like, man, this movement's just not for me. You know, I did not feel comfortable whatsoever. I couldn't get that strong in the movement. Well, actually I did hit a PB. I got three by six with 85 kilograms, right? Which is, which is a pretty decent weight, but it wasn't a very pretty squat. You know, yeah. like your torso had to get really low to hit. Oh depth. yeah. I'm surprised. Like I, like I look back at videos. I'm like, it looks like I was going to break my back mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, dude, my quads did not grow from that. Yeah. Once it was I, like a, it was mainly a back movement for you. It really it was, was almost like a good morning. <laughs> Honestly, but maybe that's why like my adductors and my back are now really developed maybe from all those years of trying to squat. Right. Yeah. But it did nothing for my quads, you know, but once you finally let go and you accept that, you know, you don't have to squat to actually grow legs, right? You can do lunge variations. You can do leg press variations. You can do a lot of other movements that still recruit your quads. Ever since I finally let go of squatting altogether and moved on to lunges and leg press, I've never seen such quick and successful growth personally in my quads, which I'm so happy about. So yeah, that there's that, right? Don't mm. ever feel obliged that you have to do a certain movement because that's the beauty of resistance training. And that's the beauty of gyms, man. You walk into a nice gym and there's like hundred pieces of equipment, you know, right? Because there's so many different ways to move your body and stimulate growth. Yeah. So in order to wrap this question up, if uh, you are thinking about changing out a movement, just kind of think objectively, have I really maximized the execution of this to mm-hmm. keep progressing? Is it causing me any discomfort or niggles or injuries? And am I enjoying it? And really think hard about that one as yeah. well. <laughs> Man, the enjoyment thing though, like I remember Lawrence, he posted this thing on his story the other day where Jordan Peters was talking about like, if you want to be a good bodybuilder, you have to get used to repetition and monotony, right? Yeah. Otherwise you're not going to be a good bodybuilder, right? Mm. You can't be that person who every four weeks you want to change your entire program because you're quote unquote bored. Yeah. Right. Like to be fair, they're not, not everyone who listens is interested in bodybuilding. Mm, that's yeah. fair enough. You know, obviously there's a difference between training and exercise and things like that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, still, if we are speaking to, to bodybuilders, yeah. right? Like you can't have that be the only reason why you're subbing things out. Cause you're like, Oh, I just want, I just want more variation. I just want to freestyle it. Cause unfortunately mm. that's going to hold you back in the long run. Yeah. Cool. Well, what's the next question? So as a matter of fact, this one is actually directed at you. So this one says, how does Jack structure his cardio while dieting for a show? 
there's no reason why we can't apply it to you as well. <laughs> well, let's be honest, Jack. You're the only one in this relationship on the Stairmaster every day. <laughs> <laughs> so the way in which I structure cardio, probably for this whole prep, will just be steps. And the luxury of this prep compared to the previous one is I have a lot more time to do steps and I incidentally get a lot more steps during my day. And even last time I didn't get steps, but I basically, the more output you do, hopefully the less you have to lower your input. So how much you're eating. So basically it's, it'll usually be that trade-off. And there are a few more nuances to talk about the cardio side of things. For example, if I did structured cardio on the treadmill or on the bike or on the Stairmaster, I think it would impact my ability to recover from sessions, which is the main reason I don't do it. The second reason is one, I just don't need to because uh, my, I've, my t- metabolism is optimized enough throughout my extended off season that I don't have to drop food that low or implement a lot of structured cardio. And the third reason is I am naturally doing a decent amount of steps. So like between 12 to 15,000 a day uh, plus training. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I guess in that case, you are, we both are very fortunate in our life circumstances right now that we aren't in a situation where we necessarily need to implement structured cardio, you know, actually dedicating half an hour every single day to going to the gym and walking on the Stairmaster, going on the elliptical, you know, doing 15 minutes of hit sprints, that sort of thing. But I'd say that, you know, we've certainly been close to that, right? Especially in our very first competition period, our very first comp prep, because we were at uni during that time. We were also at placement during that time. And that was frustrating, you know, because we were actually forced to be very sedentary, similar to how someone would be forced to be sedentary in an office job, right? Because we were in class from like 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. And I think we had a one hour break during the day where we would actually go for a walk while everyone else would still keep sitting down and just eat lunch. But I can understand how if you are in that life circumstance, perhaps in your career with your studies where you have to sit down and you have to study, right? And listen to lecture content or sit at a computer all day, then you still need to have that energy output during some way or another. So in that case, then cardio really is just a means of burning additional energy. Mm. So it's just about being selective in terms of what modality you do, because mm -hmm. you don't want to there's a fine line between doing something that's incredibly tough and will tax you. Like for example, maybe an hour on the Stairmaster. And I guess this is a, a fairly hot topic is that some people really do love the Stairmaster, mm-hmm. some successful bodybuilders. Personally, I see it as a really good leg workout, <laughs> which will probably impair your leg session. Yeah. That's or just depending opinion, on though. who you are, I feel like if I did more long distance, you know, slow and steady state cardio. Like if I did go on a Stairmaster every day or on a on an elliptical every single day, like my legs really just would wilt away, right? Mm. Like I'm still trying to recover from my years of endurance running that I concluded five years ago. So I know firsthand how doing endurance training, right? Or endurance cardio personally, that can actually impede my muscle growth. So for some people, but everyone's different. Some people will go on cardio machines and they'll grow. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. Maybe the resistance bike or something. Yeah. (laughs) And to be, yeah, to be fair, that's a decent leg workout. Mm -hmm. But yeah, basically what I'm saying is there, there's a fine line between 
Are you able to recover and maximize your hypertrophy sessions, which is where you're going to be retaining your muscle mm-hmm. versus kind of exhausting yourself through those cardio modalities and potentially just so you can eat a bit more food and potentially uh, increase your risk of losing muscle. Mm-hmm. So that's how we apply it to all of our clients. Personally, I find with my clients is that they prefer to eat a little bit less food and don't do any cardio mm-hmm. or hopefully we've uh, or they've done enough in the off season to be able to undertake a prep without having a lot of cardio. Yeah. Yeah. It's always going to be different depending yeah. on the client. Like I've got a range of clients doing a whole bunch of different things. You know, some I would people- say naturally with females, because they're smaller people, they need less food. Then they're going to be, I guess if you want to put it this way, they're at a higher risk of needing to do cardio. Yeah, absolutely. Like you get to a point in prep where you're like, I do not feel comfortable dropping food any lower, but you do have some extra time during the day. You know, steps are already at between 12 to 15,000 per day, but maybe three or four times per week, you know, let's implement a few 10 or 15 minute hit sprints on the bike, right? Or let's implement, you know, four 30 minute steady state cardio sessions, whatever they want to do. But at the same time, like you get to a point where you got to do what you got to do, right? Yeah. And, and that's the difference between dieting for a show versus another form of dieting. Mm-hmm. It's, it's that in order to be competitive, you need to get to that body fat. So you need to mm-hmm. do what it takes. And sure, there are going to be some people who will find it more easily than others. People with less adaptive metabolisms in a deficit and there'll even be people who work really hard in the off season to optimize every variable and they'll still find it harder to get down to that level of body fat Mm -hmm. compared to people who don't do any preparation and are dieting for the first time and that's just the way genetics work yeah i couldn't agree more you know it really just come does come down to you got to do what you got to do sometimes you know and more often than not bodybuilding is a sport of You have to drop calories a little bit lower than you're feeling comfortable doing so. And you got to expend more energy than you probably feel comfortable doing so as well. But yeah, cardio, it's just going to be an individual case by case basis, right? It's really going to depend on your lifestyle, of course. And in my opinion, I guess the most ideal situation is if you do live in an environment where you can go outside and you can go for walks. And again, that's something we have to take into account too, because some people, they prep through like the winter when there's blizzards, right? So like you can't go outside for a nice stroll, man. You got to go to the gym and you got to walk on the treadmill or get your heart rate up on some sort of cardio machine. If you want to expend that bit of extra energy, you don't have the luxury of, you know, walking for an hour down the beach kind of thing, depending on where you are geographically located. So that's a huge thing to take into account, especially working as an online coach with people all around the world. But I guess if you do live in a nice environment, right, in your lifestyle, in my opinion, the best circumstances is if you do have time during the day to go out for a walk outside, you know, get some fresh air, some sunlight, some nice vitamin D. And hopefully if you do are in a situation where you can get up during the day and move, if you have a relatively active job that allows you to get up and move your body and you don't have to be sedentary all day. But if that isn't the case, then yes, you just have to schedule specific times, you know, each week or during the day where you go to the gym and you expend a certain amount of energy on a cardio machine and you keep that consistent. And Mm. if anything, you know, getting your heart rate up and actually going like at a faster pace, right on an elliptical or 
up a Stairmaster or something like that, you will be able to expend the same amount of energy in a more time efficient manner compared to what you would have if you were going for a nice stroll in the park kind of thing. But mm. really, just really a depends, man. Of effort. Yeah. yeah, which is can be tough, but mm. that's the trade off. But I think that wraps up all the questions for today. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But last question we always finish on is one thing that we learned this week. So Jack, what do you learn? I'll let you go first this week. I'm going first? Yeah. Okay. So this week I actually learned how to do a groovy little thing on my iPhone because I did treat myself and after quite a number of years of having an old iPhone, I upgraded to the new iPhone 12 Pro and I got myself 256 beautiful gigabytes because I am that person who in the past I've always just bought phones that because they're cheaper, right? But they have the smaller shortage space, right? So like, Jack, I think one of my first iPhones was only eight gigabytes. I remember that. Oh my God. And I- It was the iPhone C. God, oh my God. And every time I'd want to take a photo, I'd like, it would be like storage full. And I'd have to like frantically go through my phone and delete things. And then, you know, you're like a photo hoarder and you're like, oh, but I might really want this photo of my cat from like a year ago or something like that. Like you have to decide right on the spot. Like, do I want this- photo that I want right now in sacrifice for deleting something else. Anyway, so I went from eight gigabytes. My last phone was 64 gigabytes, but I'm like, enough is enough. I'm paying a few extra hundred bucks and I'm getting 256 gigs. So I did that, but I didn't realize that now iPhones have this really groovy thing where you can actually automatically just transfer all of your data from one phone to the other phone. Cause Jack, I was still trying to do it, you know, that old school way where you like back up your phone on iTunes, on your computer, right? And then you have to sync that back up to your new phone. But I was so frustrated because my computer doesn't have enough space either, right? So it wouldn't back up my phone. But anyway, Jack let me know that, Tara, you know, there's this super easy way that you can just transfer the data from one phone to another. And you literally just put them side by side and you do some fancy thing where it's just like, transfer and then it just all it's almost like it all just airdrops from one phone to to another and in the olden days you know it didn't take like 12 hours it took like 20 minutes so yeah that's what i learned this week is that if you are transferring data from one phone to another phone you don't have to do it that old school way trying to go through itunes on your computer which by the way the itunes like it's just silly because like pcs don't have enough space (laughs) so i can't neither of us can back up our anyway well you don't need to back it up anymore you know you do because what happens if you break your phone then it's not backed up oh that's true well we gotta get the whole purpose of a backup gotta get up onto the cloud (laughs) somehow (laughs) anyway that's what i learned this week guys so take advantage of that feature next time you get a new iphone and uh need to transfer that data over yeah hot tip but anyway jack what did you learn this week so I was reading this thing about billionaires and there's a lot of hot top. It's like a hot topic and like kind of like the uh, futileness or purposelessness of billionaires in society today. And unless they kind of donate a lot of their money, because like what's the point of having a billion dollars or like a hundred billion dollars? I can't even fathom the exactly. number. Exactly. <laughs> like try and put into perspective how much that is. Like there's some videos on YouTube and stuff which go into a, a, some decent depth. Like they compare grains of rice. But basically Jeff Bezos, who's the CEO of Amazon, he 
like I was reading some stats. So in one second, Bezos also makes more than twice what the median US worker makes in one week, in one second. And he also makes three times what the median US worker makes in a year, in one minute, which is just... I when can't you, even fathom. Yeah, I know. It's just crazy. <laughs> Boggles my mind, man. <laughs> and yeah, so that's what I learned. Just kind of putting into perspective how much like over a billion dollars actually mm-hmm. is and like how difficult it would be. If someone said spend a billion dollars mm-hmm. on on like normal items, like even cars, it would be It's pretty tough. cool though because like billionaires and r- remarkably rich people on the planet, right? Like they need to donate to charity, right? And one of my cousins, she Do actually... Do they need to? Is that a rule? Oh, I hope it's... I don't know if it's a rule, it's a rule, <laughs> but I think it's just, you know, it's a good thing to do. Anyway, one of my cousins over in the US, she actually works for the Bill Gates Foundation and she's actually one of the people that decides Bill Gates, where his money is going to go and which charities that they're actually going to donate towards. So I think that's a really cool job that she has. You know, she gets to take some of Bill Gates' money and she kind of gets to call the shots on, you know, where are we going to spend this, you know? So I think that's a pretty cool job. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of um, uh, responsibility there. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You want to, um, yeah, make sure that you're investing in the right markets. (laughs) Cool. So that's it for today's episode. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, you can please feel free to leave a review on iTunes. It would mean a lot to us. And don't forget to repost it onto your Instagram stories. Tag myself, tag Tierra, tag TBD. And we'll catch you guys next week. Bye.